It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, I'm Jason Palmer, an editor of Espresso, The Economist's morning briefing app, and you're listening to Babbage, our weekly podcast on science and technology. Coming up today... Researchers have engineered an organism that does things rather differently, one that uses a six-letter genetic alphabet in its DNA rather than the usual four. Ideally, what we'd like to do is to make some kind of synthetic organism that can churn out synthetic proteins. Also on the show, electric cars are the way of the future. But what about electric planes? Will they take off? So you have a small jet engine running very efficiently in the back of the aircraft, which runs a generator, and that generator can either drive the electric fans directly or it can top up the battery. And how digital technology is transforming speakers, headsets, and other audio devices. You may have heard about the Amazon Echo and and Alexa. You can tell her to turn off the light or or to play music, and and that has taken off more than, than many people in the industry expected. So to start... Life, it seems, is not a four-letter word. It had been thought that all life on Earth uses a chemical alphabet of four letters, known as bases, to store information in the form of DNA. But earlier this year, researchers at the Scripps Research Institute in California unveiled an engineered organism that does things a little differently. This bacterium stores information using a six-letter genetic alphabet, comprising the four bases that are normally present, plus two completely artificial ones. I'm joined by our science correspondent, Anano Bhattacharya. Hi there. Hi, Jason. Let's wind back a little bit. Just remind me briefly, DNA, four bases, how do we get from there to proteins? Four bases and three of these letters form what's called a codon. And each codon represents one of 20 amino acids that naturally occur. Now, to get from that code to the amino acid and to a chain of amino acids, what you have to do is sort of translate that message. And that message is read onto uh, another chemical called messenger RNA, which is similar to DNA, and it gets carried via this uh, molecule to the ribosome, which is like the protein manufacturing factory inside cells. Okay, so so in short, four bases uh, used to as the alphabet to write the recipe for all the proteins that we see in the living world. That's right. That can be done, we learned earlier this year, with, with six bases. Yes. So this is earlier work by Floyd uh, Romersberg at the Scripps Institute. They screened thousands and thousands of small chemicals to find something that would also work as a base in DNA. Now, bases, all the natural, the, the four natural bases pair up very specifically with another. So there's two pairs. And so they needed to find two chemicals that could work as bases and also paired up so that when you have double-stranded DNA like you do in uh, human DNA in the the helix, they would uh, pair up properly. So so that one is, in essence, sort of a mirror image of the other because these things always pair up. Yeah, exactly. So you need to find two, not just one. You need to find two. Right. Um, Reasonable time to ask, why? Why do we want to do this? Life seems to work. (laughs) 
Uh, it certainly does, yeah, at the moment. It seems fairly unstoppable. The reason that you might want to do this is the genetic code produces all of these natural proteins that, that can do many, many, many different things in the body. But ideally, what we'd like to do is to make some kind of synthetic organism, probably a bacteria, that can churn out synthetic polymers, synthetic proteins that do what we want them to do. And that may not be necessarily something that's already out there. So, so what's the story from this week? They've got their, their sort of new um, expanded library of, of, of bases. What have they now done? So, yeah, so they had uh, six bases. So they have the four natural ones and then these two synthetic ones. And earlier this year, they managed to show their two artificial bases was perfectly happy in DNA and a bacteria that they engineered was able to copy it. And when it divided, it could copy over this stuff. So what they've done now, though is use these fake bases as part of the DNA message to make synthetic proteins. So they've, they've made these bases then follow that whole chain you described earlier to actually make proteins that then contain the fake bases? The bases are the message. So they travel to the ribosome and then um, another set of molecules sort of translates that message into a chain of amino acids. Right, which the ribosome then sort of sticks together, bonds them together, makes a long chain of amino acids, and that folds into a protein. Now, with what uh, Dr. Omersberg's now done is they've created a new message with their new bases and then managed to translate that message into a new set of artificial amino acids that they've made in the lab. And uh, they've incorporated that into a protein to show that it can be done. Where do, where do we go from here? Is this, is this sort of scalable in such a way that we'll have you know, completely bespoke new proteins and polymers and what have you in the coming years? That's the idea. Dr. Ormsberg, in fact, founded a company a couple of years ago to, to do this. They're focusing on new synthetic protein uh, drugs. We have some drugs now that are, are proteins and uh, you know, for cancer and so on. But they have drawbacks, like some of them are expelled from the body too quickly or they're difficult to target. Now, with the synthetic proteins, you can pretty much insert whatever artificial amino acid you like wherever you like on the protein. That gives you a lot of control. Well, if, uh, if only four made everything, then, then six can make lots, lots more, right? Exactly. In fact, um, with just two more bases... Um, he can make 152 different amino acids. Goodness. Combinatorics, here we come. On and on. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jason. You're listening to Babbage, the Economist's science and technology podcast. Next up, electric cars are clean, quiet, and it seems the way of the future. But not all forms of transport are so easy to electrify. One of the hardest, of course, is aviation, where battery power runs up against a serious problem. Weight. Kilo for kilo, jet fuel contains about 100 times as much energy as a typical lithium-ion battery. So can electric aviation be done? I'm joined by our innovation editor, Paul Markilli. Hi, Paul. Hi. Hi there. Look, as, as almost as long as I can remember, I have been told as electric cars have become more and more prevalent that the, the flying plane can't be done. But that seems to have been too simplistic, too, 
too pessimistic a vision. Where, where do things stand now in this effort? Well, you can do electric aircraft that carry one or two people. There's a number of startups around doing this already. In fact, you can go out and buy a two-seater trainer now made by a Slovenian company called Pipistrel. Um, Airbus also has made a small one. But what is happening now is that companies are also getting into bigger aircraft, aircraft that could carry more than a few people, in fact, 50 or 100 people. And that's the big question. Can that actually be done? And it seems that the, the push here is not just to have a, a big sort of flying battery pack, but to do to do what we've seen in cars, in fact, with, with, with hybrids. Yes, indeed. I mean, batteries still aren't up to that job, not carrying um, more than a few passengers, probably. At least for the time being, batteries are getting better. But with a hybrid arrangement, you can start to change things. And that does indeed look possible, marginally possible, perhaps, but for short-range small airliners. And we've seen some developments in that area this week. One is that um, Airbus has said that it's now teamed up with um, Siemens and uh, Rolls-Royce, a British aero engine maker, to build a flying test bed on a 100-seater airliner to test out a hybrid uh, electric propulsion system. How these would work is you have an electric fan, which looks like a jet engine and drives it aeroplane along. But you have a small jet engine running very efficiently in the back of the aircraft, which runs a generator. And that generator can either drive the electric fans directly, or it can top up the battery. So that gets you out of the problem that the batteries themselves aren't quite up to doing a short range. But but in addition to that, coming coming back to the the sort of the the smaller craft, there's there's a bunch of startups doing this, right? And they they take the the, the craft they're imagining take take many forms. They do indeed. I mean, you've got sort of hovering drone-like things that uh, basically look like a drone you can sit in, to small light aircraft type things. There's a couple of ideas, sort of motorbike type uh, uh, flying uh, vehicles that you could sit astride and zoom around in. Now these look doable with you know short range and limited duration. Indeed, the airline thing is another matter. But there's also startups looking at small airlines, and one of them, Zunum, hopes to be in the air in 2020 with a 12-seater hybrid electric airliner flying on these secondary cities that seem to have got left behind in the move of aviation away to big hubs. I mean, for my part, I've, I've become very accustomed to, to getting cheap flights. Are they going to stay cheap if I'm flying in, in an electric or, or indeed a hybrid? Well, I don't know. The flying testbed that Airbus is doing well, it may start to answer some of that. But Zunum, the, the startup that plans a 12-seater airline, they've actually come out with some costs. The industry cost for measuring how much it costs to fly an aeroplane is the cost per available seat mile. It's a calculation. It's how many seats you've got and how far you fly them. Well, they say that their airplane will work out at $0.08. Cents. Well, the current average for US airlines is $0.11. Cents. So in theory, yes, it might actually cost you less. And you think that number will scale with the seat number, or is that still unclear? Yes, that could scale up as well, because there are actually other savings from electrification in, in terms of quietness and uh, less servicing, as electric cars are finding. There's fewer moving parts. The engines, electric motors, are a lot lighter than the jet engine as well, so there's a weight saving there. So all these things should factor through, even for bigger aircraft. And it seems that all of this would be made a little easier if there were simply better batteries out there. It would indeed. As I said, at the moment, the battery is really not there for all electric airliners and may never be. But the thing is, nearly every week there is a laboratory somewhere announcing a better battery, some of them with sort of 50 percent or more improvements in energy. 
that does suggest that the direction is there and we will get better batteries. That's what the car makers are betting on. And now we're looking at aircraft makers betting on the same thing too. I mean, another question is is one of noise. Suppose I live near an airport. Can I look forward to a slightly quieter future? I think you could because um, I just like an electric car. It's pretty quiet and all you can really hear are the tyres. You'll hear some air noise from an electric aeroplane, but again, it will be a much quieter aeroplane. They'll have to do what they do with cars, which is add a noise so that people know that a plane is coming. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Paul, thank you very much. That's a pleasure. If you have any thoughts on the engineering of a new type of DNA or flying in an electric plane, do put them in an email to us and send them our way to radioeconomist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. Finally, digital technology, it seems, is transforming speakers, headsets, and other audio devices. Once, they were mostly appendices of other gear, such as hi-fi systems. Now they're wireless, more intelligent delivery vehicles for services. As a result, the industry's economics are changing. To explain more, I'm joined by our technology editor, Ludwig Ziegler. Hi there. Hi, Jason. Look, tell me this. Why did you even start to look into this? It seems like an almost, uh, I don't want to say a moribund industry, but certainly a very sort of fragmented one. Yeah, that's what I thought too, until I was pitched by this French company, Devialde. And they said, hey, why, don't, why don't you meet with us and, uh, and, and we'll show you our speaker, which is a very expensive speaker, like probably the most expensive wireless speaker, like $3,000. I said, okay, why not? And uh, that was interesting kind of to, to hear them talk about how they built this company and why and what the technology is. But what was more interesting is, Once you start thinking about speakers and how they have changed in recent years, it becomes an interesting story. I mean, they've become wireless. There's lots more headsets around or headphones around, different kinds. They become more intelligent. They're smart speakers. And so that's that's how I started out and uh, wrote the story. What's changed then? Because I mean, wireless speakers have been around for a while. What's different? I mean, the main driver is our smartphones. So smartphones kind of allowed you to connect to streaming services or kind of or you had MP3s in them. And so they then connected, uh, needed some speakers. And first they were, of course, wired, and then they became wireless. Uh, so music became much more portable in a way. And because it became more portable, they needed to be play-out devices. And uh, wireless speakers is one category, and the other category is, is, is headset headphones. So, so is this just an effect of all of these, these sort of cookie-cutter wireless speaker companies realizing that they have to kind of up their game a bit? No, it's, it's because music was kind of confined to your living room. And with smartphones, it became portable. I mean, much more portable than it was with, uh, with Walkmans and, and, and the like. And so that, and that created demand for speakers, and it also created demand for other speakers, namely wireless ones. You know, it's, it's rapidly moving to, to more than that, right? Because now we have an entire, a growing crop of, of smart speakers as well. Yeah, and that, that's the second big, big change. So it's smart speakers. And smart speakers, uh, uh, so you may have heard about the Amazon Echo and, and Alexa, the, the kind of the, the service that lives in, in, in the Amazon Echo. So you can <laughs> She lives talk, in there. <laughs> uh, uh, you can talk to it. You can tell her to turn off the light or, or to play music or to, to tell a joke. Uh, and, and that has taken off more than, than many people in the industry expected. So I think this year, 24 million smart speakers will be sold worldwide, and, and most of them are from, from Amazon. Once you create this sort of two-way interaction, though, with a gizmo in your home, that raises a lot of questions about what exactly is being recorded, and, and people you know, have, have privacy concerns about that. What's your take about this sort of proliferation of these kinds of devices and the degree to which we're kind of opening up our, our most private spaces to, to the companies that provide these gizmos? Yeah, first of all, I mean, there's definitely proliferation. I mean, the, let's say the, the subset of households that buys these uh, things is not that that, that big, 10, 20% or something like that. But once they have one, they buy more. 
And, and so they, they buy three, four, and then I think 10% of these now live in bathrooms or yeah, wonder w w what's, what's happening there. So, so peop some people really like them, and especially kids like them. And I've heard people compare the arrival of the, an Alexa to the arrival of a new puppy. Uh, uh, which is kind of worrisome. So, so yes, uh, people really like that. The issue is, of course, I mean, in previous times, uh, spies used to kind of break into your house to install some microphone. Now you're paying for it. And, and, and now you're paying for it. I mean, the device makers say it's not possible, that there's a disconnect, that uh, the microphones are not active or only active when you tell them. Yes, that, that's probably true, but I'm, I'm, I'm meant to be convinced that nobody's be, going to be able to, to hack these devices. Well, I mean, they could be such a rich source of data for natural language processing and all this sort of thing. It looks like it would be very much in the interests of these companies to, to make more of a microphone that could, that could be open all the time. Yes, but I mean, uh, I think if, if they do it as, 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 a, as a matter of policy kind of to improve their product, that, that would create quite a backlash or, or an acceptance problems for these devices. I mean, what they do, they collect the snippets of sound. I mean, they, they, these, these devices are data gathering devices uh, that improve the service they offer, uh, but also in the case of Amazon, just to sell more stuff. Okay, I, I, I will relax about that point. But answer me this as we, as we talk about more and more and expensive devices that I'm going to get in my home and so on. Is everybody still thinking about the important thing to me, which is the quality of the sound? I mean, I have a couple of wireless speakers now, and in terms of the bandwidth and the, the, the sort of audio file quality has been, has been kind of meh. Yeah, definitely. I mean, but you, you get what you pay for. I uh, want a good speaker they're, as they're, well they're as something that can do lots of and things. And they're also hard to pair, and, and it's it's always a hassle. But, I mean, if you plunk down $3,000, you get a DVLA Phantom, and, um, yeah, you, you have great sound. You, you, so, so I think these, these, these devices, especially the smart speakers, will get better. Apple has, has, has just postponed, actually, the, the release of its device. But once it comes, it's certainly going to be better than... Than, than the Echo. So uh, I think uh, there's hope for you. And for me and others who, who value the good sound as well as all of the bells and whistles. Yes. Right, Ludwig, thank you very much. Thanks, Jason. That's it for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up this week's Economist or find us online at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.